This is a conspiracy channel. Tape 1. Welcome to the Hush Channel. It was the night before Christmas and all through the house, not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. It was December 24th of 1945 when George and Jenny Sauter, along with their 9 of 10 children, rested, anticipating Christmas in the morning. Unbeknownst to them, they were experiencing the last moments they would all be together under the same roof. In the year 1895, George Sauter was born Giorgio Sardou on the Italian island of Sardinia in the commune of Tula. In 1908, at the age of 13, George emigrated to the United States with an older brother who went back home as soon as he and George cleared customs at Ellis Island. It is unknown why George's brother did not join him in America. One can assume that he chaperoned George to ensure his safe arrival. Or perhaps something sinister had been the reason George had to leave Italy and his family behind, seemingly in haste. For the rest of George's life, he would not speak on why he had really left his homeland. George eventually found work on the railroads in Pennsylvania, carrying water and other supplies to workers. After a few years, he took on a more permanent job as a driver in Smithers, West Virginia. Then after a few more years, George went on to start his very own trucking company. At first, he was just hauling dirt to construction sites, but later he began hauling the coal that was mined in the region. It was in Smithers where George met Jenny Cipriani. Jenny was a storekeeper's daughter who had also immigrated from Italy in her childhood, not at 13 years old like George, but at 3 years old. She was believed to be 8 years George's junior. Jenny and George would join hands in union and be married. Having decided to settle in a two-story timber-framed house just two miles north of Fayetteville, West Virginia, which had a tight-knit community of Italian immigrants. It was a small town with a main street that was less than 100 yards long. In 1923, Jenny and George welcomed their first child. John. As their family grew, so did George's business. The Sauters became a pillar of the community and was framed as one of the most respected middle-class families around. Aside from George being discreet about his past in Italy, his mouth was certainly not put on backwards in regards to his opposition to the Italian dictator Benito Mussolini. Despite Mussolini being a brutal dictator, some still revered him as a hero. The last of the Sauter children, Sylvia, was born in 1943. By this time, their second oldest son, Joe, had left home to serve in the military during World War II. The following year, Mussolini had been captured and in 1945, he was executed. However, George's criticism of the late dictator had left some hard feelings. In October of 1945, George got a visit from a life insurance salesman by the name of Mr. J. After George turned him away, Mr. J warned George that his house would go up in smoke and his children would be destroyed. The salesman even added that George was going to pay for all the dirty remarks he had made about Mussolini. Salini. Another visitor to the house who was seeking work took the liberty to go around to the back of the solder home and warn George that a pair of his fuse boxes would be the cause of a fire one day. George was confused by the remark, not only because the house had just been rewired due to the installation of their electric stove and the local electric company verified it was safe and up to standard, but also because this was the second time someone had told him that his home was going to go up in flames. Albeit, the latter man did not threaten him or mention his kids, but still, it took George back a bit for a moment. In the days preceding Christmas that year of 1945, George's older sons had noticed a strange car parked along US Highway 21, the main highway through town. The car's occupants were seen watching the younger Sauter children as they returned home from 
school. Like the rest of America that day, the Sauters celebrated on Christmas Eve of 1945. The family began opening their Christmas gifts and Marion, the oldest daughter, who had been working at a dime store in downtown Fayetteville, surprised her three younger sisters with new toys. Around 10 p.m., the five youngest children, Maurice, 14, Martha, 12, Louis, 10, Jenny, 8, and Betty, 6, with the exception of their two-year-old sister, Sylvia, were so excited that they asked their mother if they could stay up past what would have been their usual bedtime. Jenny told them that they could stay up a little later, as long as Maurice and Louis remembered to put the cows in and feed the chickens before going to bed. Meanwhile, a 50-year-old Mr. George Sauter and his two oldest sons that were present, which were 23-year-old John and 16-year-old George Jr., had spent the day working, so they were pretty beat and already fast asleep. After reminding the children of the remaining chores, Jenny took a two-year-old Sylvia upstairs with her, where they went to bed together. At 12.30 a.m., early that Christmas day, Jenny woke up to the sound of the telephone ringing in George's office. The voice on the other side of the line was a woman whose voice she did not recognize. The lady was asking for a name that she was not familiar with, and there were sounds of laughter and clinking glasses in the background. Perhaps the woman was bringing in Christmas in more festive ways like many others. But whatever was going on on the other side, Jenny had no idea who the woman was asking for. So she notified the lady that she had the wrong number. But the weird laugh the woman gave off did not sit right with Jenny, even after hanging up the line. It never would either for the rest of Jenny's life. Nonetheless, Jenny was tired and was on her way back to returning to bed when she noticed that the lights were still on and the curtains were not drawn, which were two things the kids normally attended to whenever they stayed up later than their parents. She noticed that her oldest daughter, Marion, had fallen asleep on the living room couch. So Jenny assumed that the other children who had stayed up later had gone back up to the attic which served as their bedroom. Jenny closed the curtains, turned off the lights, and returned to bed. She proceeded to doze off into a deep slumber again. But half an hour later, around 1 a.m., she was again awakened, not by a telephone call, but by what sounded like a large object striking the roof. She sat up in her bed, there in the silence of the house, waiting for another large thud before deciding she would wake George to go and investigate. But there was not another thud. It was completely silent as far as her ears could hear. She chucked it up to being nothing, or perhaps a branch, or one of the kids in the attic. Nothing to be alarmed about, but she was wrong. It was 1 a.m., the top of Christmas morning, the night sky amongst its peak time, when a neighbor passed by the Sauter residence and observed that it was on fire. This neighbor's name was never publicly released, so let's call him David. David drove off to use a nearby tavern's telephone, but was unable to reach an operator to get through to the local fire department. As time was of the essence, David drove into town and used a telephone there and was able to connect with Chief F.J. Morris. David informed him that the Sauter home was on fire with kids inside. The problem was that despite reaching the fire department chief, Chief F.J. Morris would have to wait for a qualified driver so that he could reach the Sauter home. Fayetteville did not have a fire alarm in 1945, so the fire department relied on a phone tree system whereas an operator would call one firefighter who would in turn call another and so forth. It did not help that the fire department was low on manpower due to wartime depletion. 
By around 1.30 a.m., Jenny had dozed off again, and just as she was entering an even deeper sleep, the smell of smoke filled her nose, waking her up once again. She went looking throughout the house, thinking maybe a stove had been left on, but what she found was much worse. From what she could see, her husband's entire office on the ground floor was up in flames. She rushed back to the master bedroom, waking George Sr., and the two began to shout at the top of their lungs up the stairs to the attic and to the other bedrooms on the second floor, shouting to alarm the kids that the house was on fire to wake up and get out to safety. George Sr. believed that he had heard his children answer, but was unsure in later accounts. George Sr. ran to grab his water barrel to attempt to extinguish the fire, but unfortunately, its contents were frozen over. Jenny told Marion to grab baby Sylvia and get out the door to safety, and after alarming the kids and believing to have heard them answer, the family all rushed outside. The two older sons that were present, John and George Sr., were outside along with baby Sylvia and their oldest daughter, Marion. But that was only four out of the nine solder children who had been home that Christmas. Five were missing. The same five that wanted to stay up late and whose bedroom was in the attic. Noticing this, George Sr. became frantic and what happened next is either a series of unfortunate events or immaculate planning on behalf of somebody who had it out for the Sauter family. George Sr. ran back into the house and the staircase was now engulfed in flames, preventing him from being able to reach the second floor, let alone the attic where the remaining five kids would be trapped. So he ran outside around back, thinking he would look up and see the kids at the bedroom windows, hollering or trying to even escape. But there was nobody in the window. Often smoke kills before the fire, so it was possible that the kids were unconscious. But when George went to grab his ladder, which he always kept propped up against the house, it was missing. He looked around to see if perhaps it had fallen over or been placed on another side of the house, but it was not. It had seemingly vanished. George Sr. was determined to save his kids. Bear foot, he climbed the wall and broke open one of the attic windows, cutting his arm in the process. Smoke poured out and filled in the space inside the attic. From here, he assumed that his kids were unconscious from the smoke and he would have to manually get each of the five out. George Sr. decided the next best thing to do would be to grab one of his two coal trucks and drive it up to the house so it could give him the height to reach the windows. Just hours before on Christmas Eve, George Sr., John, and George Jr. were using the trucks for work. But now, both of the trucks refused to start up. Meanwhile, Marion had ran over to a neighbor's house asking her to phone the Fayetteville Fire Department. But the neighbor was unable to reach an operator to put her through to the fire department or a firefighter. Having tried to rescue the five kids in every way imaginable, but to no avail, the six solders who had escaped had no choice but to stand there and watch the house burn down and collapse over the next 45 minutes. Assumably, watching the flames burned their remaining five family members. By the time the fire department arrived, hours later, around 8 a.m., the solder home had been reduced to a smoking ash-filled basement. The firefighters, one of whom was the brother of Jenny, could do little but look through the ashes that were left of the home. They conducted a very brief search, which wrapped up at about 10 a.m., only two hours after their arrival. Chief F.J. Morris told the family that no trace of the children was found 
ground and that the fire was able to completely cremate and consume their remains. He instructed the family to leave the site as it was pending further investigation. According to another account, they did find a few bone fragments and internal organs but chose not to tell the family. It has also been noted by modern fire professionals that their search was not thorough in the least. The family waited four days and when they saw nothing was being done, George Sr. attained a bulldozer and covered the basement with five feet of dirt to convert the area into a memorial of plants and flowers for his children. A coroner's inquest was held whereas the coroner deemed the fire was an accident caused by faulty wiring. Six days after the fire on December 30th of 1945, death certificates were issued for the Sauter kids. Remarks about their deaths in the local newspaper contradicted itself stating that only one part of one body was found in the same breath as it said that all the bodies had been recovered. Nine days after the fire, on January 2nd of 1946, a funeral was held for Maurice, Martha, Louis, Jenny, and Betty Sauter. George and Jenny were too grief-stricken to attend the funeral. As spring approached, the Sauters planted flowers and the soil bulldozed over the house. Jenny tended to it carefully, daily, for the rest of her life. However, further developments in early 1946 reinforced the family's belief that the children they were memorializing might in fact be alive somewhere. Evidence emerged which supported their belief that the fire had not started in the electrical fault and was instead set deliberately. The driver of a bus that passed by through Fayetteville late Christmas Eve said that he had seen some people throwing balls of fire at the house. A few months later, when the snow had melted, Sylvia found a small, hard, dark green, rubber ball-like object in the bush nearby. It was here that George recalled his wife's account of a loud thump on the roof before the fire. What Sylvia found looked like a pineapple bomb, hand grenade, or some other incendiary device used in combat. The family later claimed that contrary to the fire marshal's conclusion, the fire had started on the roof, although by then there was no way to prove it. Other witnesses claimed to have seen the children themselves. One woman who had been watching the fire from the road said she had seen some of them peering out of a passing car while the house was still burning. Another woman at a rest stop between in Fayetteville and Charleston, West Virginia, said that she had served them breakfast the next morning and noted the presence of a car with Florida license plates in the rest stop's parking lot as well. It did not take long before the Sauters began to question the information they had been told by officials about their children and the fire. There were too many conflicting coincidences and plots of information that were nonsensical. It seemed like a setup and a kidnapping ploy, not an accidental fire that killed their children. For instance, if the fire was truly caused by an electrical issue, why had the Christmas lights remained on throughout the fire's early stages when the power should have been out? A telephone repairman also told the Sauters that the home phone line had not been burned through in the fire, as they had initially thought, but instead it had been cut by somebody who had been willing and able to climb 14 feet up the pole and reach 2 feet away from it to do so. Also, the ladder Mr. Sauter had searched for to initially rescue the kids had also been found 70 five feet away at the bottom of a mound. It did not make sense. The neighbors attested to witnessing a man stealing a block and tackle from the property around the time of the fire. The man was identified and arrested. He admitted to the theft and claimed he had been the one who cut the phone line, thinking it was a power line, but denied having anything to do with the fire. The man's identity and motives for cutting any lines at the scene, however, are confusing. Jenny would later state in 1968 that if he had indeed cut the power line, she and her husband, along with the other four children, would have never been able to make it 
get out of the house. Jenny also had trouble accepting Chief Morris's belief that all traces of the children's bodies had been burned completely in the fire. Many of the household appliances had been found still recognizable in the ash along with fragments of the tin roof. She compared the results of the fire with a newspaper account of a similar house fire that she read around the same time that killed a family of seven. Skeletal remains of all the victims in that case were reported to have been found. Jenny would burn small piles of animal bones to see if they would be completely consumed and none ever were. An employee of a local crematorium she contacted told her that human bones remain even after bodies are burned at 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit for two hours, which was far longer and much hotter than the house fire could have ever been. The Sodders hired a private investigator named C.C. Tinsley from the nearby town of Golly Bridge to look into the case. Tinsley learned that the insurance salesman who had threatened them with a fire a year before over Georgia's anti-Mussolini sentiments had been on the coroner's jury that ruled the fire an accident and told this to the Sodder family. He also learned of rumors around Fayetteville that despite Chief Moore report to the Sodders that no remains had been found in the ashes, Morris had found a heart which he later packed into a metal box and secretly buried. Morris had apparently confessed this to a local minister who confirmed it to George. George intensely went to Morris and confronted him with this news. Morris agreed to show the two where he had buried the metal box and they dug it up. They took what they found inside the box to a local funeral director who after examining it told them that it was in reality fresh beef liver that had never been exposed to fire. Later, more rumors circulated around Fayetteville that Morris had afterwards admitted that the box with the liver had indeed not came from the fire originally. He had supposedly placed it there in hope that the Sodders would find it and be satisfied that the missing children had indeed died in the fire. The Sodders thus began their quest for their beloved ones, a quest that took them around the country apparently. George did not wait for reports of sightings to come in. Sometimes he made them for himself. After seeing a girl in a magazine picture of young ballet dancers in New York City who looked like one of his missing daughters, Betty. He drove all the way to the girl's school where his repeated demands to see the girl himself were refused. He also tried to interest the FBI in investigating what he considered a kidnapping. Director J. Edgar Hoover personally responded to his letter stating the following. Although I would like to be of service, the matter related appears to be of local character and does not come within the investigative jurisdiction of this bureau. He added that if the local authorities requested or accepted the bureau's assistance, he would of course direct agents to assist. But the Fayetteville police and fire departments declined to do so. Sounds like somebody did not want the case to be solved. In August of 1949, George was able to persuade Oscar Hunter, a Washington DC pathologist, to supervise a new search through the dirt at the house site. After a very thorough search, artifacts including a dictionary that had belonged to the children and some coins were found. Several small bone fragments were unearthed, determined to have been human vertebrae. The bone fragments were sent to Marshall T. Newman, a specialist at the Smithsonian Institution. They were confirmed to be lumbar vertebrae, all from the same person. Person. Newman's report stated the following. Since the transverse recesses are fused, the age of this individual at death should have been 16 or 17 years old. The top limit of age should be about 22 since the centra, which normally fuse at 23, are still unfused. 
Given this age range, it was not very likely that these bones were from any of the five missing children. Since the oldest, Maurice, had been 14 at the time, although the report stated that vertebrae of a boy his age sometimes was advanced enough to appear to be at the lower end of the age range. Newman added that the bones showed no sign of exposure to flame. Further, he agreed that it was very strange that those bones were the only ones found, since a wood fire of such short duration should have left full skeletons of all the children behind. The report concluded that the vertebrae had instead most likely came from the dirt that George had bulldozed over the site. Later, Tinsley supposedly confirmed that the bone fragments had came from a cemetery in nearby Mount Hope, but could not explain why they had been taken from there or how they had came to be at the fire site. The Smithsonian returned the bone fragments to Georgia in September of 1949. According to its records, their current location is unknown. The investigation and its findings attracted national attention, and the West Virginia legislator held two hearings on the case in 1950. Afterwards, however, Governor O.K.L. Patterson and State Police Superintendent W.E. Burchett told the Sauters the case was hopeless and closed it at the state level. The FBI decided it had jurisdiction as a possible interstate kidnapping, but dropped the case after two years of following fruitless leads. But the end of official efforts to resolve the case, the Sauters still did not give up hope. They had flyers printed with pictures of the children, offering a $5,000 reward, which soon doubled, for information that would have settled the case for even one of them. In 1952, they put up a billboard at the site of the house and another along U.S. Route 60 near Anstead with the same information. It would in time become a landmark for traffic throughout Fayetteville on U.S. Route 19, which is State Route 16 today. The family's efforts soon brought another reported sighting of the children after the fire. Ida Crutchfield, a woman who ran a Charleston hotel, claimed to have seen the children approximately a week afterwards. I do not remember the exact date. The children had come in, around midnight, with two men and two women, all of whom appeared to be, of Italian extraction. When I attempted to speak with the children, one of the men looked at me in a hostile manner. He turned around and began talking rapidly in Italian. Immediately, the whole party stopped talking to me. Investigators today do not, however, consider her story as credible as she had only first seen photos of the children two years after the fire, five years before she came forward. George followed up leads in person, traveling to the areas from where tips had came. A woman from St. Louis, Missouri claimed Martha was being held in a convent there, and a bar patron in Texas claimed to have overheard two people making incriminating statements about a fire that happened on Christmas Eve in West Virginia some years before. None of of these proved significant though. When George heard later that a relative of Jenny's in Florida had children that looked similar to his, the relative had to prove to George that the children were his own before George was satisfied. Web sleuths have assumed that given the coincidences of a witness stating they had seen a car with Florida license plates with the children combined with Jenny's relatives living in Florida, that it is possible there was a more sinister plot involved, whereas one or both Sauter parents planned insurance fraud with Mr. J, the insurance guy. A plan that involved burning the house down. However, everything did not go as planned and perhaps the insurance guy had his own plans on the side. In 1967, George went to the Houston area to investigate another tip. A woman there had written to the family saying that Lewis had revealed his true identity to her one night after having too much to drink. She believed that he and Maurice were both living in Texas somewhere. George and his son-in-law, Grover Paxton, were unable to speak with her. Police there were able to help them find 
the two men she had indicated, but they denied being the missing sons. Paxton would say years later that doubts about that denial lingered in George's mind for the rest of his life. Another letter that they received that year brought the Sauters what they believed was the most credible evidence that at least Lewis was still alive. One day, Jenny found in the mail a letter addressed to her, postmarked in Central City, Kentucky, without a return address. It appeared to have been previously opened, but then sealed again. But inside was a picture of a young man of around 30 years old with features strongly resembling Lewis, who would have been in his 30s if he had survived. Jenny and George could not deny the resemblance to their Lewis, who was nine at the time of the fire. Beyond the obvious similarities of dark curly hair and dark brown eyes, they had the same straight, strong nose, the same upward tilt of the left eyebrow. On the back was written, Lewis Sauter, I love Brother Frankie. L-L-I-L, boys, A90132 or 35. The Sauters were of Italian descent and the number 90132 that was on the back of the photo was at that time the postal code for Palermo, Sicily. The family hired another private detective to go to Central City and look into the letter's origin, but he never reported back to the Sauters and they were unable to locate him afterwards. The picture, nonetheless, gave the Sauters hope. They added it to the billboard but left the part about Central City and other published information out out of fear that Lewis might come into harm. They put an enlargement of the letter over their fire place in their home. It was believed the Sauter family was monitored by the mafia or the village community after the fire. Maybe their son, Louis, assumed that his letter would be opened, so he had to hide his new name and place of residence with the message behind the picture. With all the clues from the letter and its cryptic messaging, some believe Louis Sauter had begun going by the name of Francisco Palermo. George admitted to the Charleston Gazette Mail later that year that the lack of information had been like hitting a rock wall stopping them from going any further. He nonetheless vowed to continue with the search. In another interview around that time, he stated that time was running out for them, but they only wanted to know if the kids indeed died inside the fire. They wanted to be convinced. Otherwise, they would not know what happened to their children. George Sauter died later that year in 1969. Jenny and her surviving children, with the exception of John, who never talked about the night of the fire, except to say that the family should accept it and get on with their lives. The rest of the Sauter family continued to seek answers to their questions about the missing children's fate. After George's death, Jenny stayed in the family home, putting up fencing around it and adding additional rooms. For the rest of her life, she wore black and mourning and tended to the garden at the site of the former house. After her death in 1989, just 20 years after George, the family finally took the weathered, worn billboard down. The surviving Sauter children, joined by their own children, continued to publicize the case and investigate leads. They, along with older Fayetteville residents, have theorized that the Sicilian Mafia was trying to extort money from George and the children may have been taken by someone who knew about the planned arson and said they would be safe if they left the house. Meanwhile, West Virginia also has a strong Ku Klux Klan presence who not only hate black people but also Italian people. The Klan was also started on Christmas Eve in 1865, Pulaski, Tennessee. It would not be far-fetched to believe that they would find different harmful ways to celebrate their anniversary. In such a tight-knit community where everyone would scratch each other's back, it has also been a assumed that perhaps Mr. J, the insurance guy, retaliated against George by sending word back to George's family in Italy and the old country. 
sending word that George was rebelling against Italian authority. Those in the old country took this as no matter to be glossed over and perhaps thought to get rid of George and his family rather than to have traitors attached to their lineage and their name. Jenny's family perhaps got one of that news and developed a plan to abduct the kids to get them to safety then send them to different cities via their connections so that they would remain unfound by their immediate family which would then in turn protect them from being harmed by the family in the old country. Then there is the notion that the kids were possibly taken back to Italy. If the children had survived all those years and were aware that their parents and siblings had survived too, the family believes they may have avoided contact in order to keep them from harm. Sylvia Sauter Paxton, the youngest in the family, died in 2021. She was in the house on the night of the fire, which she said was her earliest memory. She was the last of the kids to leave home and experience her parents' grief for such a long time. This is what she told the Gazette Mail in 2013, that she and her father often stayed up late talking about what might have happened. Until the day Sylvia died, she believed that her siblings had survived the fire. End of tape one.